Chapter 15 of The Inevitable This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlech. The Inevitable by Louis Capurus. Translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. The Inevitable. Chapter 15. Cornelie's premonition regarding Mrs. van der Stahl's opinion of her intercourse with Duco was confirmed. Mivro spoke to her seriously, saying that she would compromise herself if she went on like that and adding that she had spoken to Duco in the same sense. But Cornelie answered rather haughtily and nonchalantly, declared that, after always minding the conventions and becoming very unhappy in spite of it, she had resolved to mind them no longer, that she valued Duco's conversation, and that she was not going to be deprived of it because of what people thought or said. And then she asked Mrs. van der Stahl, who were people? Their three or four acquaintances at Belloni's? Who knew her besides? Where else did she go? Why should she care about the Hague? And she gave a scornful laugh, loftily parrying Mrs. van der Stahl's arguments. The conversation caused a coolness between them. Wounded in her touchy oversensitiveness, she did not come to dinner at Belloni's that evening. Next day, meeting Duco at their little table in the Osteria, she asked him what he thought of his mother's rebuke. He smiled vaguely, raising his eyebrows, obviously not realizing the commonplace truth of his mother's words, saying that those were just Mama's ideas, which of course were all very well and current in the set in which Mama and his sisters lived, but which he didn't enter into or bother about unless Cornelie thought that Mama was right. And Cornelie blazed out contemptuously shrugged her shoulders, asked who or what there was for whose sake she should allow herself to break off their friendly intercourse. They ordered a mezzo fiasco between them and had a long chatty lunch like two comrades, like two students. He said that he had been thinking over her pamphlet. He talked to please her about the modern woman, modern marriage, the modern girl. She condemned the way in which Mrs. van der Stahl was bringing up her daughters, that light, frivolous education, and that endless going about on the look for a husband. She said that she spoke from experience. They walked along the Via Appia that afternoon, and went to the catacombs, where a trappist showed them around. When Cornelia returned home, she felt pleasantly light and cheerful. She did not go out again. She piled up the logs on her fire against the evening, which was turning chilly, and she supped off a little bread and jelly, so as not to go out for her dinner. Sitting in her tea-gown with her hands folded over her head, she stared into the briskly burning logs and let the evening speed pass her. She was satisfied with her life, so free, independent of everything and everybody. 
She had a little money, she could go on living like this. She had no great needs. Her life in rooms, in little restaurants, was not expensive. She wanted no clothes. She felt satisfied. Duco was an agreeable friend. How lonely she would be without him. Only her life must acquire some aim. What aim? The feminist movement? But how? Abroad? It was such a different movement to work at. She would send her pamphlets now to a newly founded woman's paper. But then, she wasn't in Holland, and she didn't want to go to Holland. And yet there would certainly be more scope there for her activity, for exchanging views with others. Whereas here, in Rome, an indolence overcame her in the drowsiness of her cosy room, for Duco had helped her to arrange her sitting-room. He certainly was a cultivated fellow, even though he was not modern. What a lot he knew about history, about Italy, and how cleverly he told it all. The way he explained Italy to her, she was interested in the country after all. Only he wasn't modern. He had no insight into Italian politics, into the struggle between the Quinerial and the Vatican, into anarchism, which was showing its head at Milan, into the riots in Sicily. An aim in life, what a difficult thing it was. And, in her evening drowsiness after a pleasant day, she did not feel the absence of a name and enjoyed the soft luxury of letting her thoughts glide on in unison with the drowsy evening hours, in a voluptuous self-indulgence. She looked at the sheets of her pamphlet, scattered over her big writing table, a real table to work at. They lay yellow under the light of her reading lamp. They had not all been recopied, but she was not in the mood now. She threw a log into the little grate and the fire smoked and blazed. So pleasant, that foreign habit of burning wood instead of coal. And she thought of her husband. She missed him sometimes. Could she not have managed him with a little tact and patience? After all, he was very nice during the period of their engagement. He was rough, but not bad. He might have sworn at her sometimes, but perhaps he did not mean any great harm. He waltzed divinely. He swung you round so firmly. He was good-looking and, she had to confess, she was in love with him, if only for his handsome face, his handsome figure. There was something about his eyes and mouth that she was never able to resist. When he spoke, she had to look at his mouth. However, that was all over and done with. After all, perhaps the life at The Hague was too monotonous for her temperament. She liked traveling, seeing new people, developing new ideas, and she had never been able to settle down in her little set. And now she was free, independent of all ties, of all people. If Mrs. van der Stahl was angry, she didn't care. And, all the same, Duco was rather modern, in his indifference to convention. Or was it merely the artistic side in him? Or was he, as a man who was not modern, indifferent to it even as she, a modern woman, was? A man could allow himself more. A man was not so easily compromised. 
a modern woman. She repeated the words proudly. Her drowsiness acquired a certain arrogance. She drew herself up, stretching out her arms, looked at herself in the glass, her slender figure, her delicate little face, a trifle pale, with eyes big and gray, and bright under their remarkably long lashes, her light brown hair in a loose, tangled coil, the lines of her figure, like those of a drooping lily, very winsome in the creased folds of her old tea-gown, pale pink and faded. What was her path in life? She felt herself to be something more than a worker and fighter, to be very complex, felt that she was a woman too, felt a great womanliness inside her, like a weakness which would hamper her energy. And she wandered through the room, unable to decide to go to bed, and, staring into the gloomy ashes of the expiring fire, she thought of her future, of what she would become and how, of how she would go and whither, along which curve of life, wandering through what forests, winding through what alleys, crossing which other curves of which other, seeking souls. End of chapter 15